Today, we will be doing the conclusion of the book of Nehemiah. So we're going to look at it, and then we're going to wrap it up. We're going to tie a little bow around it. We're going to point to the gospel, and we're going to make some application for our lives for it. If you've got your Bibles, open them up to the book of Nehemiah. We're actually going to flip through. So it's going to be a little harder for you to take notes today. So get your Bible open. Maybe your journal is open. Try to take some notes. But then if you don't have your Bible, pull your phone up, get to that Bible out, get to Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to look at Nehemiah. We're going to walk through some of these various things, point out some key verses. So if you've got your Bible, grab a pen. You can underline, you can star, you could highlight some key verses as we look at this. Now let me set it up for you in this way. Some of you haven't had children. Some of you are parents watching with your college student, and you have had children. You understand exactly what I'm about to talk about. When we first had kids, I'll, I'll never forget having to baby-proof the house. In baby-proofing the house, we bought these little plugs, and these little plug covers that would go into the outlets so that the kids couldn't take their finger and stick their finger into the outlets. And I always thought to myself, is this really such a big deal? But you know, if you make a mistake and a child actually sticks a finger into an outlet one time, that could be a devastating mistake. So you take great precaution. You, you buy these plug covers. I don't know who invented the plug cover, but uh, they're probably rich by now if they, if they uh, were able to patent that. So these plug covers, we put them all over our house, every single plug. It's annoying because then you have to unplug these plug covers. And these plug covers are not just baby proof. These plug covers are sometimes mommy and daddy proof as you kind of have to dig your fingernail into the side of the plug cover to pry the plug cover away from the outlet. And as you're doing that, you're thinking to yourself, I'm really close right now to sticking my finger in the outlet as I'm prying this plug cover away from the outlet. And yet still, every plug that was within the arm's reach of a child in our house had plug covers on it because we were trying to make sure we had baby-proofed the house. What is it? about a baby, a young child, that makes them fascinated with an outlet. Even as they grow older, you say to them, don't put your finger in that. It could kill you. And so they get creative. They start bringing forks or knives or pencils or pens or any number of utensils. Does this fit in this little hole right here? This is what we do. Because there's something in us that drives us to do things that we shouldn't do. And some of us, like me, have a bigger dose of that desire to do something than others. So if you really want me to do something, just say, you can't do that. There's some of you that can relate. Some of you can't. You are rule followers by nature. You, if somebody tells you you can't do it, you back away and you move off. If somebody looks at me and says, you can't do that, it's like saying, all right, I'm your huckleberry. Let's see if we can get this done. It, it's, it's daring me to go to this and do it. So when I read the scripture, and the scripture says to me, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. There's something inside my soul, there's something inside my sinful flesh, that fallen nature, that wells up in me as though it's watching a wave well up in the ocean, and it's telling me, go do it. Go do it. That ends, I can feel it. I can even feel the emotion stirring in my heart at times when somebody says, don't do this. Or when somebody does something and I want to, I want revenge. I want to do something back to them. And it wells up in my heart to where it's like a wave getting ready to crash against the rocky shores. And I know it's bad. And I know it will cause despair. And I know it's not godly. And I know it's not good. But the desire still wells up within me. Oh, this is what I'm going to do. 
my pride, my anger, my self-sufficiency, all of these things, I can feel it. Can you feel it? Have you gotten to the point where you're sensitive enough about your own thought processes, your own emotional processes, that when temptation is coming, you can feel that temptation welling up inside you. And you know at that point in time, oh, I better pray, I better call a friend, I better dig deep into the Word. If you haven't gotten to the point where you're sensitive enough, where you're aware enough, that you recognize your own sinful tendencies, your own sinful nature, then Nehemiah today has a word for you. It's a word for me too. To call us to be intentional and strategic about guarding our lives to live them for the gospel. So let's look at our main idea of the text. And then we're going to walk through this. I've actually chosen a main idea of the text out of the New Testament verse that I think draws from this. So I'm going to try to use Nehemiah and point you to the New Testament. Say, how does this Old Testament book show us the gospel? How does it leave us longing for the gospel? How does it work as we look at the New Testament? So here's a New Testament verse for you. 2 Timothy 2.13. It says this, If we are faithless, which I am so many times, and so are you. If we are faithless, God remains faithful. Why does God remain faithful? For he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny his character. He cannot deny who he is. Our God is a gracious, loving, and merciful God. And if you're watching this and you've bought into some lie about some vengeful God who's just trying to be the cosmic killjoy and rob you of your fun, that could be no farther than the truth of what we see in God's word. God is a gracious, merciful God. He's slow to anger. His loving kindness is enduring to us forever. It is steadfast to us. God is a God that loved you so much. He loved you in this way. He sent his only son to die on a cross to redeem you and me from our sin. So what's a key verse? may not be the main verse in Nehemiah, but it is a key verse. And it's a key verse because it shows up so often throughout the Old Testament. Here I have it listed for you. Nehemiah 9.17. The second half of that verse is the key portion that shows up repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. You see it in Exodus 34, 6, in Numbers 14, 8, in Psalm 86, 5, and 15, Nehemiah 9, 31, and Jonah 4, 2. You see this repeated over and over and over again. This is the character, this is the nature that God has revealed to us about himself. This is who he is. And for that, we should be eternally thankful. And for that, we should have great joy. Yeah, we're in the midst of uncertainty. But one thing we can be certain about is we have a God who is gracious and a God who forgives. So now let's open those Bibles. Let's look at those tablets, those phones, whatever you have. Nehemiah chapter 1. What do we see here? He begins with the words of Nehemiah. The people come. They give him a report. Nehemiah hears the report. He sits down and he weeps. He mourns. Nehemiah realizes that the situation is bad. He then repents on behalf of himself and on behalf of all of his family. And then he remembers God's word. And then he requests mercy. Look at Nehemiah 1.11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. Notice the servant part. That shows up repeatedly through this book too. To the prayer of your servant who delights to fear your name. Fear of the Lord shows up repeatedly throughout this book. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This man 
being the king. We learn that he is a cupbearer to the king. In Nehemiah chapter 2, we understand that God has called Nehemiah now to go and rebuild the walls. But he's got to get leave of the king. He has resources that he needs to acquire. And so we understand that the main idea here of Nehemiah chapter 2 is that when God calls, God provides. Notice the example of Nehemiah in Nehemiah 2. He issues a dependent prayer. So I prayed to the God of heaven. He knows the God of heaven is the one who actually can give and change the hearts and minds of men or that can take it away. So he says to the king there in verse 5, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. He issues this prayer. He has a dependent prayer. He has a deliberate plan because the king then asks him, what's this going to look like? He gives it to him. And then he directs the praise to God. Notice there at the end of that particular section in verse 8, the good hand of my God was upon me. There's a lesson for us there in humility and in directing praise to the right location. We look at the second half of Nehemiah chapter 2. He goes... He inspects the walls. He has a sense of mission to serve God and others in verses 10 and verse 12. He inspects the walls personally in verses 13 and 15. He identified with the people in verses 17 and in verse 20. He cast the vision for them compellingly at the right time, we see in verse 18. And he was courageous in the face of criticism, we see in verse 20. Nehemiah had faith that God would make them prosper. Look at what it says at the end of verse 17 of chapter 2 and verse 18. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God, he pointed them to the right location, that had been upon me for good and also the words of the king he had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So Nehemiah, here's the problem. He goes to the king. He gets permission to rebuild the walls. He tells the people. They begin to say, let's do this. Let's rebuild the walls. So in chapter 3, the people began preparing the walls. We get this huge list of names, this huge list of where they worked and what they did, which indicates to us that God uses normal people. God uses everybody to accomplish his purposes for his glory. So no matter who you think you are, no matter how low you think of yourself, no matter how much of you think of yourself, God uses normal people like me and like you for his glory because it's about the God using us, not about us. So if you think God can't use you, there's a lesson here that God can use you. He can use you just like he uses people all throughout the Bible to do things for his glory. If you think too much of yourself, recognize you are a servant of the Most High God, and he may use you, but he doesn't use you for your glory. He uses you for his glory. And here we see that laid out with all these names in chapter 3. We come to chapter 4. We realize there is opposition to the work. This opposition shows up. They say, what are these feeble Jews doing in verse 2? And then Tobiah the Ammonite says to him, that famous line, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their wall there in verse 3. Nehemiah's response is he prays. Verse 4, hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt upon them. There's opposition, but it doesn't stop him. In times of trial or opposition, we must keep pursuing the Lord's will while finding strength in our great and awesome God. Now that is for us today, right now, in the middle of COVID-19, the coronavirus expansion. We continue to seek and pursue God's will, and we find our hope. 
We find our rest. We find our fortress. We find our rock of stability in God's goodness and God's greatness and that we serve an awesome God. There's nothing that has happened that has surprised our omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, everywhere God. He's got this. We may not understand. We may not know. We may be working harder. We may not be working harder, depending on your position. We may be in doubt. We may be in despair. We may be worried, but God's got this. We look to our God and we say to our God, I will trust in you. Move to chapter five. Chapter five comes this point of where fear of our God rises up. It's here a couple of different times. But in this, there's also the outcry of some who have been mistreated. So we see that Nehemiah listens compassionately to them in verses 1 through 6. Then he leads courageously in 7 through 13. And then he lives charitably. He gives back in verses 14 through 19. I note for you here two times it mentions the fear of the Lord. In verse 9 of chapter 5, it says, So I said to them, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations and the enemies? And then look over at verse 15. It says, but I did not do so. I did not. He didn't put the heavy burdens. He didn't take the taxes. He didn't do all this. He didn't lord over the people. I did not do so because of the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We know that from the book of Proverbs. We understand that the fear of the Lord drives us in awe of our God with humility to seek his word, to live our lives for him. That's what we're seeing here in Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 6, we see that we should fear God, not man. Chapters one, uh, Verses 1 through 4, Samballot, Tobiah, Geshem, they all keep inviting him to come down and talk. They have bad intentions. In verses 5 through 9, there's rumors of rebellion as they talk about these things even in their midst. In 10 through 14, there's treachery in the temple. Uh, they are connections and relationships in the temple that will show back up in chapter 13, verses 15 through 19. There's spies in the midst. We see here as it walks through there, the reason all this happens, look at verse 9 of chapter 6, for they all wanted to frighten us thinking. They wanted us to have fear. They wanted to frighten us thinking we'll drop the work. Then look down at verse 13. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid. And then look down at verse 14 at the end of it. The, the prophets that were hired wanted to make me afraid. And then look at how God flips that now. They wanted us to be afraid. They wanted God's people to fear. They wanted God to be afraid. In verse 16, it says, Then when all of our enemies had heard of the fact that the wall was built in 52 days, all the nations around us were afraid, and they fell greatly in their own esteem. And then verse 19, Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. The devil wants to challenge us. The devil wants to come after us. The devil wants to make us afraid to do anything so that we stay isolated, we stay alone, which we understand that now even more than ever, that we stay away from other people. We're not bold for the gospel. We're not reaching out for the gospel. And here you see that if we keep our trust in God, we keep our faith in God, we have no reason to despair, no reason to grow weary in good doing. We keep leaning into the truth of the gospel and to the Lord, that God can take those tables and flip them from where the world's trying to make us to fear to all of a sudden the world sees what God has done and they say, who is this awesome God who has done these things? This is a great passage of what God has done here in Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 7, the wall is now built. 52 days, amazing. 
but the book doesn't end there. Nehemiah chapter 7, it's the list of exiles. This shows us that God kept his promises to return them. This shows us that God is faithful and that you can trust him. Nehemiah chapter 8, one of the greatest chapters in all of Scripture. The people gathered as one people, and they said to Ezra the scribe, Bring the book of the law of Moses. So they bring the book. Main idea here, we must understand the word of God and experience the joy of its truth. We let the word do its work. And then you'll remember from the Mandalorian, we use this in chapel, this is the way God has spoken. We focus in here on one of the verses quick, uh, often cited, uh, put on artwork, put on mugs, put on things of that nature. We see it there in verse 10. At the end of it, it says, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And during this time, the joy of the Lord must be our strength as well. We turn to the second half of chapter 8. We see that they obeyed. You have the Feast of Booths. They obeyed. They celebrated. They listened to what they were supposed to do, and they did it. There's a good application for us there as well. So then you move to Nehemiah chapter 9. When people confess their sin, the people also confess who God is. Some of the things they confessed about who God is just in Nehemiah chapter 9. God discloses his uniqueness in verses 5 and 6. God created the heavens and the earth in verse 6. God keeps his promises in verses 7 and 8. God saves his people in verses 9 through 11. He cares for his people in 12 through 15. God is good and we are not in 16 through 18. That's the portion where it talks about the fact that we are rebellious people, that we are a faithless people, that God is a faithful God. We are a hopeless people without God to put our hope in. We are the rebels. God is the one that is secure and he is there. Verses 19 through 21, God sustains his people. Verses 22 through 25, God gives generously. Verses 26 through 31, God models mercy and patience. Verses 32 through 37, God reveals his righteousness. We see this all through. So what's the response after we confess that we are sinful and we look throughout the entire Old Testament and we say, God, you are the God that brought Israel out of Egypt. You are the God that parted the Red Sea. You are the God that provided manna and water. You are the God that caused the walls of Jericho to fall. You are the God that sent them into the promised land. You are the God who did all these things. Our response to that in the realization of who God is and who we are is that we want to obey the living God. So chapter 10, they sign a covenant. It gives you the list of all the people who signed the covenant. We see here a submission to the word of God. They knew what the word of God said. Let's do it. They're excited. This is a time of revival. This is a time of awakening where they say, we are going to obey the word of God. Oh, that we would have the passion in our nation, the passion in our world to say, yes, this is the word of God. Yes, we will obey it. Yes, we will do what we can. They separated themselves as the people of God. They put in support for the worship of God. And then we move to Nehemiah chapter 11. And chapter 11, beginning verse 1, going through 12, verse 26, talks about repopulating the city. All of these different people come back and repopulate the city. It gives a list of the priests and the Levites. Huge, long list of names. Main idea for this as we walk through it was strategically living. Choose where you live. Choose the spot where you're going to take that position. Choose the spot where you're going to live. Perhaps you come alongside a church planner. Perhaps you are a church planner. Perhaps you go to a region where God's name is not known. Perhaps you use your life strategically and intentionally for the gospel. Perhaps you choose that job because you know that place, that place of employment needs a witness for the gospel. So you're using your gifts to further God's kingdom, strategically living and working for God's glory. 
And then we look at chapter 12, verse 27 through 47, and we see the dedication of the wall. The walls have been built. The people have worshiped. They have repented. They have signed a covenant. They have praised God's name. And so now let's celebrate the dedication of the walls ending at the temple. Ezra's work with the temple, Nehemiah's work with the walls, it all comes together here as the people celebrate and all of the people walked across those walls. They had to be thinking about that admonition, about that, that uh, cut down that was issued about a fox going up and these walls would fall as they walked along. Uh, they may have even been joking about that. Who knows? The dedication of the wall. They had preparation for the celebration. They had a procession where they celebrated, and then they had provisions for the temple for continued celebration. So then we come to Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13, we look at this and say, oh, you should have stopped at chapter 12. But this is the truth. It's here. It's Nehemiah chapter 13, and we see the final reforms. We see Nehemiah's gone away. We see Nehemiah returns. We see that there was unwise associations. There were unkept promises. Chapter 10 to chapter 13, it shows us our nature. There were unholy Sabbaths. They didn't even keep the Sabbath. And there were ungodly marriages. They were already intermarrying. This was a problem in Ezra. It's already a problem here again. And it's the reason they were in exiles, because they weren't keeping the Sabbath, because they weren't keeping God's laws. And here they come back, and not long after they're back, they're already right back at it, because this is the nature of humanity. This is who we are. Spiritual carelessness leads to evil actions with serious consequences. So I've got two points for you of application. Number one, the Old Testament cycle. What we see happening in the book of Nehemiah is what we see happening all throughout the Old Testament. It's what we see happening with the children of Israel. It's what we see happening especially in the book of Judges. There, there's a time where there is sin, and then there is judgment, and then they repent and cry out to God, and then God delivers them, and then they repeat. There is sin. And there's judgment brought upon them. They cry out to God. And then they get lazy and they get careless. And so then they, they repeat the whole cycle all over again. And this is what happens. They were exiled. They repented. They cried out to God. They said, God, help us. God, help them. They're back in the city. Then they begin to get spiritually careless. And then they sin again. And then here comes Nehemiah saying, Whoa, what are you doing? What are you doing? Student at Cedarville parent or whoever is listening. This is the cycle of humanity. We get spiritually careless. We stop digging into the Word of God. No Bible, no breakfast. We stop reading the Word of God. We stop surrounding ourselves with people that will speak into our lives. We get spiritually lazy. We're not attending a solid, good church that can speak to our lives, that can challenge us, that can encourage us. We're not praying to God. We're not relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. We're like that child, constantly wanting to stick the finger in the light socket, even though we've been told, this is bad, this will harm you, this is not good. Recognize the message of Nehemiah for my heart and for your heart today when it says to us that if you are spiritually careless, you're going to take things for granted. And then your heart's going to turn because our hearts are already bent in the wrong direction and that sinful nature or that flesh is going to cause us to sin against God and the consequences are severe. Avoid the cycle. Recognize it in your own life. Put people in your life, friends for life, who will look at you and say to you, what are you doing? The Nehemiahs who come along and challenge you and say, what in the world has happened here? No, we don't do this. 
Be in a solid local church where there's accountability. Make sure that you are digging into the Word of God consistently, memorizing, meditating, reading Scripture. Make sure you are praying and asking the Lord through the power of the Holy Spirit living within us, which we have that they didn't have. Through that power of the Holy Spirit, we are living a life for the King. It's one of my greatest fears. Is that as a student who graduates or moves on from Cedarville, you get away from the greenhouse. You'll get away from chapel five days a week. You'll get away from the Bible monitor. You'll get away from the authentic Christian community and your life will just begin to slide and slide and slide farther and farther and farther away from God. And this is why we tell you on the very first day, God has no spiritual grandchildren. It is about you and your relationship with God. Your mom and dad may be awesome. Your grandparents may be incredible men and women of faith. But this is about you and your relationship with God. Mom and dad can't do it for you. Grandparents, relatives, your church, your pastor, nobody can do it for you. You have to own your faith, own your theology, own your relationship with God. You have to learn to walk with God. Nobody can do that for you. Recognize the cycle that's here. It's all throughout the Old Testament. Moses was away for a short time. They built a calf. Are you kidding me? After God does all this, we're idiots. The book of Judges. We're idiots. Nehemiah. Are you kidding me? We're all idiots. We look to the New Testament. Does it stop there? No. Demas. Paul writes about him. Our friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings in Colossians 4.14. But by the time Paul writes his letter in 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. You mean a guy with the Apostle Paul deserted Paul and went back to the world? Yeah. Because our flesh is that strong. That barring the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, barring good brothers and sisters in our lives, barring relying on the Word of God to change our minds so that it's renewed daily so that we can live our lives for God, we're destined to destruction. There's a second point here. The second point here is that we long for more. So how do we long for more? Let's be honest here. First of all, the ending is very disappointing. If we were seeing a movie, and the movie was the book of Nehemiah, we would write on the review, this movie should have ended at chapter 12. Why in the world would you include chapter 13? This is the worst movie ever. It just left me down. All this work, all these things went into place, and they don't appreciate it. What an ungrateful people. That's what we would say to a movie or show. It would frustrate us. We read chapter 13, and it should frustrate us. But it should also convict us. So it's not just that the ending is disappointing. It's that the fact we know the ending is actually brutally honest. You know, one of the great things I love about the Bible, one of the reasons you can trust the Bible is the Bible doesn't sugarcoat everything. The Bible tells you the truth. The Bible tells you that these people are not the hero of the story. God is. The Bible tells us that we are the ones who can't do anything. We are the sinners. We are the rebels against the king. And the king then sends his son to redeem the rebels, to reconcile to the creator. That's the message of the gospel. That's what we are ambassadors for. The ending here reveals to us the helpless, that's me, and the hero, that's God. It shows us we can't do anything. And we see that as Nehemiah cries out multiple times in chapter 13, Oh God, remember me. Oh God, help me. He cries out, and you see this. You see it in chapter 13, verse 14. Remember me, oh my God. 
In, in verse 22, remember this also in my favor, oh my God. And then he says, remember these people who are against you, God, in verse 29. And then remember me, oh God, for good, at the end of chapter 13, verse 31. The ending reveals to us who the hero is and who the helpless is. So what's our main idea? Even when we are faithless, if we are faithless, God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. We have a promise-keeping God, even though we are promise-breaking people. Without God, we are hopeless. But with God, we have a living hope. Here's some application for you. First of all, how do we respond to this? We need to humble ourselves before God. We need to recognize our own inability. And then we need to praise God for His grace, His mercy, and the hope of the gospel. I probably should have included a fourth here. We recognize our own inability. That's part of repentance. That's part of, of recognizing and repenting before God, crying out for help. We humble ourselves in doing that before God. We praise God for His grace, His mercy, and His hope. We surround ourselves with a good local church that can pour into our lives, that can keep us on the right way. So for your encouragement, I want you to listen to the song Living Hope by Phil Wickham. I think it describes a little bit of who we are and who we were without Christ and gives us the living hope that's in Christ. How great the chasm that lay between us, how high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation, humbling myself, I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished. The end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken. I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Then came that morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe. Out of the silence, the roaring lion declared, The grave has no claim on me. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe. Out of the silence, that roaring lion declared, The grave has no claim on me. Jesus, yours is the victory. Nehemiah points us forward, longing for the greater Nehemiah, longing for the greater new Jerusalem, without sin, a new creation, longing for us to be recreated and resurrected with the living King, the first fruits of the resurrection, with a new incorruptible nature and flesh. So as we look at Nehemiah, as we realize who we are, as we live strategically, we don't live in desperation that this is the cycle we're doomed to repeat. We live and we say, by the word, by the grace of the Holy Spirit in our lives, by brothers coming alongside us, I have a living hope. And that living hope is Jesus Christ. And I will live my life anchored to the word of God, surrounded by brothers and sisters to encourage me, praying for for the help of the Holy Spirit, living in the power of the Holy Spirit, allowing the word of Christ to dwell in me richly, and I will live my life for the living hope for Jesus Christ. Dear student, that is my prayer for you. That if you get nothing else, 
that in your time at Cedarville, you will develop a passion for the Word of God, a passion to serve God, a passion to love God. That you will dig into the Word and let it revive your soul, let it enlighten your spirit. That you will commit your life by surrounding yourselves with Nehemiahs that will speak truth in your life so that you may live a life focused on the living hope. Brothers, we do not despair. We are not discouraged, even though we are hard-pressed. We have the hope of the gospel. We have the living hope of Jesus Christ. So today, if you've strayed, will you repent? If you haven't, will you commit to say, I'm going to live my life for Christ? I'm going to be smart about it. I'm going to recognize how flawed I am. I'm going to recognize how sinful I am. I'm going to recognize I need to be in the Word every single day. I'm going to recognize I need the power of the Spirit in my life. I'm going to turn when I sense that temptation welling up. I'm going to pray for my Abba Father to help me through the power of His Spirit to resist and flee the temptation. I'm going to surround myself with good brothers and sisters in a solid local church, and I'm going to do this right, living for the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our living hope. That's my prayer for you. May we all stand for the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Dear Lord, I pray for myself. I pray for our Cedarville community. I pray for others who may be watching. Lord, I pray that you would just help us to recognize who we are. But Lord, as we recognize that, not that we despair, not that we sink into depression over our sinfulness, but Lord, we, we just humble ourselves and plead out for our Abba, Father, to rescue us, to be that hope. And Lord, that we tie ourselves to the truth of your gospel, the truth of your word, and we live a life that is not wasted, a life that is sold out for the gospel, whatever may happen, Lord. May you be glorified in what we say and what we do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. I pray that you'll go in peace with God's favor upon you.